we need to begin to view the maladies of the world as signals, trying to get our attention. These signals are meant to spur us towards alignment and harmony and to help us realize and embrace our interconnectedness. That, that's where we find peace. This is Anipi Radio, a space for authentic conversations around indigenous wisdom, science, lifestyle, and spiritual practices. The show is founded upon the belief that our most effective contribution to a more peaceful and harmonious world is for each of us to journey towards alignment with spirit, humanity, and nature. I hope your experience here serves as a source of depth, liberation, and joy in your life. In last week's episode, we started a series, and the series is called The Delicate Dance of Compassionate Acts. We talked about activism, philanthropy, and kind of the common discussion that I keep having over the years about you know, how to be more effective, how to engage uh, without bringing lots of negativity into your life, and how do, we, how do we address giving back? How do we address this idea of philanthropy and, and why does activism make people feel, or even the term activism, make people feel uncomfortable? I think it's important to ask ourselves why. You know, why does that make us feel uncomfortable? What does it say about our life? And I'm not necessarily implying anything negative. I'm just saying that it's something important to tap into, to tune into. It's, a, it's an area that I believe deserves our attention especially today. We're just a few, a few days after the inauguration and there are some, things are intense. Things are more intense. And I think a lot of things that are changing right now are not necessarily new things. Some of these things have been going on for a long time. But I do think that what's changing right now is the intensity of things, of life. Good and bad. I believe in the yin and yang of life. Everything has Kind of that, that both, both sides that sort of grow simultaneously. And I think that while we have many positive things happening with the internet, more communication, more uh, access to information, and, and then so on, the ease of all that is profound. And that's important. You know, and at the same time, we have some pretty horrible things going on through the internet and as a result of the internet. And I, we don't need to get into the details of that in this particular discussion, but we understand that what's changing is not necessarily that there's more or less of one thing. It's more just kind of the exposure of those things, our ability to see them happening, and consequently, I think, the intensity of life. We're living at hyperspeed. I talk about that a lot, and I, I think it's very true. We're there, everything that's happening is happening more and faster and more intensely than probably ever before in, in, in our recent history. So it's time to take pause, to reflect, and to discuss some things uh, you know, about what, all, what, is, what does all this mean and how do we navigate that space. 
how do we flow in that space rather than fighting? I had a recent discussion with some good close friends of mine, a couple of guys that I met through Uganda, Rwanda experience. Uh, one of them still lives there in Uganda. One of them is, is in Seattle. We continue to meet just to talk about philanthropy and life and self-actualization and <laughs> things like that. One of the discussions that came up recently was about peace. And we all kind of agreed that people seem to have lost touch with the idea of peace. What does it even mean at this point? And I think that if, if people are, have lost touch with peace, the idea of peace and what it could mean, what it would look like, it makes it pretty difficult to make a, a strategy for getting there. I mean, if we don't know what the goal is, I'm a strategist by profession. We have to understand the vision. We have to understand a very clear picture of what that looks like such that we can most effectively work towards it. And I think it's a problem that we've lost touch with the idea of what peace could actually be or mean. And we have to start to paint a better picture about what it actually looks like. What are some of their root issues? What are the things I should be aware of, the things that perpetuate, you know, continue to perpetuate the violence and destruction of our planet and certainly the oppression of people? And then I want to talk a little bit about even, you know, our perspective towards activism, our perspective towards philanthropy. We have a kind of a societal view that, that says, oh, this is what this is about. And I don't know if that's always accurate, being on this side of the fence. So I think it's time to have a, you know, a good, healthy discussion about that. Let's dive in. Let's start with framing the discussion. I think that's important when you're going into any discussion. Let's talk about where's this, you know, where's it coming from? What's this about? When we talk about philanthropy or activism, I'm just kind of using those two words. We could say humanitarianism and missions work and, and aid and relief work and all kinds of other things. But I think philanthropy covers very precisely what it is that we're talking about in a long-term effort to improve the quality of life for people that need it, and to protect our land. That's philanthropy, in a nutshell. And then there is activism, which is uh, maybe just a little bit more intensely kind of people that are petitioning for that kind of action. And really, I think activism supports philanthropy in a way. So allow me to take you on another little journey here. I like story, and I think it's effective. When we have an illness... We have some sort of, you know, ill feeling, or whatever it is, that, that comes comes upon us and maybe it's a cold maybe it's some sniffles or a cough or something like that maybe it's something more intense than that maybe it's more dire maybe it's cancer or something else we have an illness come into our life in our own bodies i believe that is a signal from our bodies to pay attention and i'm not going to talk about why we get illness and why we have experience sickness and things like that. We'll come to that in another discussion. This 
illness that comes upon us is an alert system. It is part of an elaborate alert system within our bodies to pay attention, to become more aware of what's going on. It's your body kind of getting your attention, saying, hey, you, look at me, pay attention to me. There's something out of alignment here. So if you're like I was for much of my life, you know, being just a grin and bear it, get through it, no matter what kind of guy, you ignore it. And typically it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. You know, I've had tooth problems in the past where, you know, I would just ignore it and ignore it. I don't have time to take care of that stuff. I'm on a mission. I got important stuff to do, whatever. That's never worked out well. And in the end, you know, you end up with a root canal or something terrible like that. Nobody wants that. I believe the same or similar is very true of society. You know, I, I subscribe to the kind of the, the Lakota belief that the earth is a li- living organism. I mean, that's the whole Gaia concept. And there's been a lot of other people that have petitioned that concept as well. Came from that overview effect of, of astronauts that went out into space and looked back at the earth and said, that is one big living, breathing organism that we are all a part of. It's not, there's no division. There's no lines. Uh, there's no borders. There's no walls between America and Mexico, for instance, and so on. We're all the same. There's no division of race or creed or anything. So we have this big living, breathing organism, and you know, and how we live affects that entire organism, whether it be human kind of related or actually with the planet and the impact that we have on the planet. And humans, and, and I'm continuing with kind of the Lakota stance on this, and this is true of most Native American cultures, they look at us as humans as serving kind of like white blood cells. You know, we're here to clean up the bad stuff, the misalignments. So when something goes out of line, the white blood cells are there to kind of correct it and put it back in place. And this is not a moral right or wrong kind of correcting. This is a, hey, you're, you're, what you're doing is, is destroying the water system. So we need to kind of correct that a little bit and, and create a more harmonious kind of uh, existence with the water. And it's something that, uh, similarly, in, in the social element, you have to look at then a uh, society that is very divided and say, well, that's not working. As the little white blood cells, we need to go in and try to correct that and say, what could make that work? How could we live more peacefully and harmoniously? So we have a job to do, and it's not, you know, that's not the whole story. It's not just like we're here to just clean stuff up so the planet runs smooth. That's not it. That's not our reason for existence, but it's part of our existence. And it has effect an effect on the, the greater reasons for our existence. That misalignment, when it shows up as an illness of some kind, a malady of some sort, I think that is a symbol. It, 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 again, it's, it's, a, it's something that we're supposed to, to pay attention to. It's a reflection of something that's going on. And we have we are supposed to have, I believe, a very symbiotic relationship with nature and the animals. Again, going back to Native American culture, there's always that kind of symbiotic relationship, even with the buffalo. There's a very prayerful kind of reverent relationship between the Indian and the buffalo. It was symbiotic. They needed each other. They thrived from that symbiosis. But we all know what happens when there's too many white blood cells. You know, they start acting erratically, they get out of alignment, they overpopulate, and so on. 
and you get cancer or leukemia. That's what happens with too many white blood cells. I'm not here to talk about population control. That's not what this is about. We'll have that in another discussion, maybe. I want to talk about what this means when we see a, a malady, a sickness popping up. What, what do we do about that? I mean, like, racism, institutionalized racism in America is a part of the sickness of our nation. It's a representation of a larger problem. It is not the problem. It is a symptom. And I talk about this a lot. It's kind of my platform. It's talking about, you know, kind of getting to the root of things, the perspective level of, of humanity, and addressing symptoms as a symptom, not as the problem. War and poverty and, and trafficking, all those things, those are symptoms, not the problem. The problem is our perspective that keeps fueling that, perpetuating those cycles. So these things pop up and we say, okay, that's a sickness that's happening. What should we be paying attention to? You know, uh, you know the white blood cell kind of scenario leads us to, you know, in, the hu in a human, you know, your temperature rises. On a planet, you know, our temperature is rising as well. We have just learned that 2017 was the hottest year on record in the history of recorded temperature. That's, uh, that's serious. So we see that from a nature standpoint, we're already in the red zone. This is something we need to be paying attention to, obviously. We have the ability to intentionally affect that, even if it's our unintention, <laughs> unintentionality that is affecting it now. We have the, uh, the ability to become aware of it. Again, there's no reason we can't be aware of anything these days with all the technology that we have and the proliferation of information that's floating around the internet. It's there. We can't claim ignorance as easily as before. So we see the problem. We know we have access to solutions. The question then is, do we do anything about it? And you can say the same thing too, again, about a, a bad tooth. You know, you know it's there. You have information on the internet to do something about it. You have doctors and whatever you could ask. Specialists. But do we always? Not always. You know, and it could be anything. Maybe it's something less obtrusive than a, than a toothache, which is, yeah, it's pretty hard to ignore. But uh, I, would, I would say the same thing about racism. However, plenty of people find very interesting and, and seemingly effective ways in their life anyway of completely ignoring that. But I think we have to embrace our role as white blood cells here on this planet. And, and we have to try to do what we can to bring ourselves back into alignment. And I think that's going to require some, you know, some coordinated efforts on our part. We have to come together through unity and intentional action. So you either view you know, an illness as an annoyance or as something that you have no control over or whatever, or you can view it as the body's way or the planet's way in this case of letting you know something that is out of alignment. It's like a coach that says, hey, yo, you, you need to pay attention to that. This is an area that's not working for you. What if we looked at poverty and war and racism, as I was saying before, as being similar to that? 
as symptoms, a reflection of something that's happening deeper within us? What if those acts and those experiences exist for the purpose of getting our attention, to turn us around, to influence our perspective? And if we ignore them or shut them out, perhaps we're missing out on something profoundly important in our lives. I think that's an area of philanthropy that a lot of people forget that this is a two-way street. It's like you're not just out there to help save people and help them out and, and, and all that. In theory, you're being helped out as well. Your perspective is changing. Your quality of life may be improving as well as you help others. There's something, again, to be said for the symbiosis of that relationship. The, you know, the potential relationship there. Perhaps those brushes with the world's problems are the universe's way of directing us down another path of experiences. I think we need to tune into that. If you're listening to this podcast, my assumption to, to some degree is that you're looking for self-actualization. You're going on that red road path. That's what I'm doing. That's why I'm here, you know, engaging in conversation with you. And I think that these maladies that we see rising up around us Again, there's a potential there for them to help draw us closer to our higher selves because we're tuning in to a deeper degree with humanity and not only with humanity, but with nature. In the absence of those experiences, we fail, I think, to further our journey towards self-actualization. You know, the process can be painful. Processes often are arduous and painful and grueling sometimes. But the payoff can be huge. Again, that's the red road, black road scenario in the Lakota belief. That the black road, you know, it's easy, but tends to have very little value or fulfillment involved with it. It doesn't tend to bring people to happiness. But the red road, however, which is typically full of lots of relationship issues, good and bad, crazy experiences, difficulties, you know, contrast, but it's fulfilling. It has the potential to bring you towards authentic happiness and joy to connect you with that energy. It has the potential to connect you with a, you know, a life less ordinary, a, a life that is, well, more extraordinary. So if you're driving down the road, you're, say you're falling asleep because, you know, the intensity of life and you're Drifting. That's a problem. We don't want to be asleep at the wheel. And let's say there's a big pothole in the road, which I'm very familiar with, having lived in third world countries for the last decade. When you hit one, it is extremely annoying. Sometimes it can be maddening. We don't like hitting potholes. We don't like the potholes exist. But in more than one occasion in my crazy busy life, <laughs> of driving around in third world countries and hitting potholes, and certainly also here in the United States. So there have been times when a pothole corrected me or woke me up and said, hey, don't drive off the road, man, or wake up. Here's a little adrenaline boost for you to keep you alive and well, to keep you awake while you're driving. 
I think that we need to start viewing the world's problems and maladies as little signals to get our attention. Not simply as something annoying that we wish just wasn't there and we want to turn our heads and kind of ignore it, but to say this is something that needs your attention. They aren't just someone else's problems. I mean, either you buy into the interconnectedness of life or you don't. And we'll, we'll talk more about that. But, you know, these are symptoms of a sickness of a connected living organism that we call Earth. So let me ask you this in relation to what I was just talking about. Do, I mean, do you believe that we are all interconnected? It's a nice thing to talk about. We talk about Ubuntu and the uh, South African philosophy that has been a huge inspiration in my life. I've always been the Ubuntu guy. I have another friend, uh, Zane, from uh, another organization called Ubuntu, and he, he's spreading the Ubuntu philosophy very well. And I love what they're doing there. You can buy Ubuntu coffee at Whole Foods, by the way. They, that, that philosophy is that I am who I am because of who we all are. We are all interconnected. It is the Gaia philosophy that this is one living, breathing organism, and we are part of that. Not just humans living on it, but we are part of that organism. That's the Ubuntu idea. Some of you are familiar with the Ubuntu operating platform from Linux. Again, they did that in, in, in the spirit of interconnectedness and, and free open source software. So the question is, do you view our planet as one living, breathing organism that includes us and animals and everything else or not? It's nice and poetic to say it, but do you really believe it? Think about it. Or... The alternative would be, there is a separate planet, and there are people on that planet, and there are animals on that planet, and those are separate. And even amongst the people and the animals, there is separateness. So we have kind of two basic, fundamental schools of thought. One is the interconnected perspective, and one is the divided perspective. I think that now, more than ever, especially considering the new regime in, in charge of the American government, we have to pick a side. Do you, are you on the interconnected side or the divided side? We are being pushed into a situation right now where we really have to make a choice more than ever before. We should have before, we didn't, and now we got this. If you truly believe that we are interconnected, you must also resolve to understanding that a symptom like the war in Syria or the standoff at Standing Rock or the oppression and objectification of women, these are all signs of a sickness. And they're a sickness not of someone else or something else. And you can throw, you know, climate change in there as well. This is a sickness of one interconnected organism, and you're part of that. All of us are. If your finger or whatever was infected, you don't just ignore it just because it's far away from your heart. <laughs> it's part of you. It's, you know, if it's not operating properly, everything's off. Everything's a little off kilter, a little off balance. 
I think we need to tune into that. We need to change our perspective on the way we view the world. And again, I'm getting into the perspective level of things because I think that's where it all starts and ends. I want to share a little quote with you that I love from Florence Scovel Shin. She wrote a book called The Game of Life and How to Play It. <laughs> One of the most beautiful little short books I've ever read in my life. Highly recommend it. I'll put it in the show notes. She says, No man is your enemy. No man is your friend. Every man is your teacher. That's hard to swallow. I did a meme about this a while ago and put it out. I think a lot of people look at it and they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean? No man's my enemy. No man's my friend. I don't know if I buy that. But every man is your teacher. Now that's that's something I think people can can at least kind of say, okay, well, I'll, I'll entertain that. But here's the thing. Like, no man is your enemy, meaning if they are your teacher, could they really be your enemy? And if they are your teacher, do they fit the exact model of what you feel a friend should be? And at the end of the day, my feeling on all of it is that we need to spend a lot less time trying to figure out who's our friend and who's our enemy and view everyone as our teacher. We have the opportunity to see every human encounter as an opportunity to learn you know, to learn something about ourselves and the planet we live on and other people and so on. But it's not only true of a person. I also think, and then I've experienced a lot of this, that it's also true of experiences. You know, any type of experience can be your teacher. I, I often say, you know, I think I heard it from Wayne Dyer first, and I'm not sure, I don't think it was a direct quote from him. He was quoting someone else, but you know, when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. But what I realized, too, is that the teacher isn't always just a person. The teacher could have been a book or a video or a, a quote or, or whatever. You know how you, you hear a quote, you know, at one point in your life, you're like, oh, that's a good quote. And then later on you hear it. And because of the experiences that you've had between then and now, you think, oh, wow, that's what that quote means. That's what that book means. That's what that video was trying to say. That's what that movie was about. That's what that teacher was trying to teach me. <laughs> and I've often said, you know, oh, I read this book when I was, you know, 25 years old and didn't have much of an impact. And now I read it again and it's blowing my mind. It's the same book. And I've often said, you know, my mind wasn't ready for it. And yeah, my mind, my heart, my soul, my spirit <laughs> wasn't ready for it. But now it is because I have gone through experiences that have refined me and have pushed me and now, as the student, I am ready. And the teacher is the wisdom. And now I'm ready for that. Wisdom can come in many, many different forms. People, experiences, books, films, whatever. So we have to stop looking at these difficulties of life you know, the contrast that we have that comes into our life as just some annoyance or something we wish would go away and start looking at it as an opportunity to learn to grow. That's a choice. You know, if you're faced with a difficult challenge, 
I have to believe it's entered to your it's entered your life to provide you with an opportunity to advance your alignment with love ultimately it's not just there to drag you down that's the, I think that's the mis misperception that most people get into and I've certainly been guilty it, it's there to in fact build you up even if it's something like some terrible disease I I think that those diseases and those tragic instances and those all these things that happen i mean you look at helen keller's life and look at what happened to her and the things she experienced and we could certainly make a case for all you know her just feeling absolutely devastated and so on but that desperation that she felt in those moments drove her to a higher existence they drove her to understanding things in a way that so many people never are driven to understanding because they don't have that level of contrast in their life. And, and while I don't wish difficulty and contrast in people's lives, I also recognize the benefit when it does happen. And I think for many of us that have been through difficulties, and, and I've certainly been through some pretty intense ones, I can now look back and say, you know what, I'm grateful for what I learned from those. Now, it doesn't mean I enjoyed the process, and I'm not saying I'm even grateful for the process. I'm not. To some extent, I can still look back and say, man, that just sucked. That was difficult. I hated that. I hope it never happens again. But I am grateful for what I learned on the other side. If I choose to view a physical sickness as a sign that I need to tune into my body to listen to what is telling me and to honor it through you know, intentional thought and action, it's a different scenario. The outcome can be very different than if I had looked at it as just an annoyance or something I don't want to pay attention to or if I ignored it or whatever. And I view all these things as these negative things that have entered my life. Why is this going on? Why is this happening? Whatever. Or I can say, okay, something needs my attention. What am I missing? What do I need to tune into? I usually start with stillness. One of my mantras that I say often, especially my in my nighttime evening meditations is in this stillness I am I sort of long for, you know, a society that is more interested in contemplation and looking into the deeper side of life. And, you know, with a, with a genuine desire to connect more deeply, to align. So let's do a little summarizing here. I believe that physical illnesses or, you know, that, that they are a physical manifestation of an energetic misalignment. You know, it's our body trying to get our attention, to get us in tune and find balance, to get over the fear that we're holding on to. And social maladies, such as violence, racism, war, poverty, you know, other, other similar things. They're humanity's way or our universe's way of alerting us to a problem that needs our attention. 
Do we have a choice? Do we view it that way or do we not? Is it just an annoyance? Is it somebody else's problem? Or is it something that is part of this organism that we are part of that is trying to get our attention and we need to give it that attention or we are going to suffer more for it? Maybe not in obvious ways. Probably not in obvious ways in most cases. But it has an effect. Don't be fooled. And if we ignore these signs, they become worse. And again, I think that we're reaping some of that now. Again, with the, the recent inauguration, we can see that we've just kind of allowed a new, very powerful force in the new cabinet to come in that represents dare I say some pretty nasty stuff some evil these guys are professionals at what they've been doing and it's been very negative in the past and I've no no real reason to think that will change in the future but I do think that we can change and perhaps this is part of that awakening so things tend to worsen when we ignore them and I think things have worsened now because of that ignoring the apathy, the silence. And that makes it more difficult to correct, unfortunately. But it doesn't mean that we need to just gloss over it and not try to correct it now because it's only going to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah, so the, the, the worst part is, you know, like much like any other chronic disease or illness, people get used to it. They get used to dealing with the pain. They kind of forget about it to some extent. Or they go numb. They choose to go numb. We get used to not feeling well, or or we get you know forget what it might feel like to be healthy or to feel good or to be happy. In American society, we've been so so desensitized to violence and many other things, tyranny. TV shows and films, you know, they're, they're far more violent than ever before. It just keeps going up and up. I see every now and then I'll see something on a TV if I'm at someone else's house or something. We don't have one, but, you know, I'll see something and I'm like, oh my gosh, man, the, the violence. They have really taken it up a notch. I didn't see that stuff when I was watching the A-Team, you know, when I was a kid. Nobody really died. Uh, but we've become so desensitized, they have to just keep raising the bar. Obviously, the same thing in film. In many ways, society is more disconnected and out of alignment than in any other time in recent history, despite our abilities to be more connected and more aligned. That comes down to our choices. Most people don't even see that. Maybe that doesn't affect them badly enough or directly enough. It's other people's problems. And once again, that belief fosters more disconnectedness. With the, again, this new regime that is in office, I believe the, you know, the tyranny of our government is going to be much more difficult to ignore and deny than ever before. And I'm not saying tyranny in some loose, flippant kind of way. I've been studying this my whole life. I think tyranny is a pretty accurate word for it. We have sort of an oligarchical system at this point, and that is frightening. It's something that the United States usually points a finger at another country and says, oh, this, 
That's an oligarchy. We don't, we don't want that. Yet here we are. So now we have a situation where the veil has kind of come off. And today, as I'm recording this, this is the 22nd, and this will be published probably tomorrow. And I, and I, I feel, you know, the weight of what's just happened with the inauguration and, and, and the marches and so on. And, and I'll talk more about that in the next episode. I've already got it written out. But the veil has come off. And that is a call to all of us to wake up and become more cognizant of how our lifestyle choices affect society and our planet. You know, I mentioned in part one of this series, I think, that, that uh, we're all playing a role. And that role may be deliberate, and it may be completely oblivious. I think it's time to tune in, though, and ask yourself whether or not you are playing an active role. As I talked about in the beginning, we need to figure out what does peace look like? What is it all about? Do we even understand what peace is anymore? I mean, we've been, when can we point back in history to a time when we were just living in peace? It's pretty difficult to do, and Lord knows I've tried. <laughs> I even hired interns to try to figure it out once. <laughs> there have been some times, and in some certain societies. By the way, one of the most notable was about a 400-year stretch there with the Native Americans, where they lived in pretty much absolute peace. Talk about that another time, but that, Again, speaks to my uh, reverence and love for the Native American culture. And I think there's a lot we can take from that to learn from and to emulate in today's society. So I don't think that many people have that great of a concept of what peace could actually look like. And, and I'm a little guilty of that too, because when this conversation came up with my friends the other day, I realized that they, you know, they said, well, what does peace look like? And my first thought was, I don't know. I mean, what would that entail? And then, of course, I very quickly <laughs> jumped into exactly what I thought peace would look like, and I wrote it down, and I'm about to talk to you about it now. Peace is obviously a very multifaceted concept. It's complicated. I'm certainly not going to do the, the injustice of you know, trying to say that I've got it all figured out. I certainly don't. I can't explain what peace looks like perfectly. I can't explain exactly what love is. You know, the, I think the most important, most powerful, profound elements of life are kind of in the box of the ineffable. That's what makes them so special. 
So I'm going to rattle off a few things here that I had in discussion with my friends and, and then discuss it a bit. I think that first and foremost, and I think this is obvious, you know, peace is founded upon the idea of equality. We, we can't really, I think it's a bit absurd to, to try and say that we can have peace without equality. If we are going to foster a society of peace, I think it means we have to reform our social agreements, like capitalism and the way we look at healthcare and education and so on. You know, I think that we're going to have to completely abolish the private prison systems. That would be one element of peace as well. We can't sit here and say that we have abolished slavery when all we did was relabel it as private prison systems and the war on drugs. You know, the, the, the war on drugs uh, was very clearly designed to oppress minorities and, and not to remove harmful drugs from our streets. I also think that we need to start treating drug dependency not as a crime, but as a mental illness. I'm, I'm happy to hear that there's, there's more talk about this than any time I can remember, and that's, I think, a positive thing. We need to dial into the institutionalized racism issues, especially in America. <laughs> that, that has to be eradicated. We, we can't keep allowing this. We, we can't keep institutionalizing it, making it part of the way our institutions work. We have to acknowledge the reality that white privilege is still alive and well in America. And I think we have to work fervently towards eradicating that. And that's a very complicated one because it comes with lots of years of baggage. And I think that that is part of why it's so complicated, part of why it's so difficult to unravel. You know, it's like a 50-year marriage and, and there's a problem yet today. And, and you think, well, unfortunately, that started 30 years ago. A lot of expectations and systems around all of this that kind of back all that up and to unravel all that, man, it's almost unfathomable. And I think it's certainly more unfathomable when we, when we think about it on a social level rather than just a husband-wife scenario. So that, that's, that's something that, uh, you know, it, it's important. We're going to have to sort it out. If we don't, we're going to continue to have conflict and division in our society. And, we, and that's, that's why we have so many other problems stemming up that continue to not be solved because we're still divided. Onward. We have to stop objectifying and degrading women in our media and in our society. And certainly in the White House now. You know, we, we've just elected someone that is a kind of a poster child for misogyny. And I, I feel like, you know, why, why is this acceptable? I think about what this means. You know, I have daughters. I have a wife, a mixed race wife, no less. And, and that, yeah, the prospect of, you know, just understanding or the, or the, the idea of where they're at kind of in the eyes, in the crosshairs now because of our new government is a bit terrifying. Anyway, we've got to address that. We've got to do something about that. We can't keep objectifying women and degrading them. At some point, I'm going to do a piece on divine feminine energy and even be so bold as to discuss matriarchy. That's where, that's where my 
my thoughts go in this discussion. It's towards that. All right, we have to create a new standard for media, I think in general, one that is incentivized by fact and authenticity and maybe even peace rather than violence and sensationalism and corporate interests and so on that it's driven by now. I mean, there was a a film with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal that came out about this Nightcrawler, I think was the name of it, um, and Rene Russo. It was a great film, very well done, and very dark and nasty, so beware. But if you can handle it, watch it, because it does a very, very good job of depicting the media's lust for sensationalism and violence and how that's what gets the ratings. That's why we had, you know, that's why the new president got so much airtime because he is the king of sensationalism and violent behavior and, and so on and so on. It, 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 was, it was perfect. I said from the very beginning of his coming into the, you know, into politics or as a, as a runner in the election, uh, it, it was like we just entered in, we just replaced our election system with the Jerry Springer show. <laughs> and it worked. It worked. So I think that one of the other things that we need to do is to work towards true democracy in our government. We don't have a real democracy in America. We have some illusions of a democracy. We have some elements of democracy, for sure, in certain areas, at certain levels. But as we've just seen from the electoral process, it's not like we have an actual democracy, in, in, even in that process. You know, when one candidate loses by three million votes in the popular vote and they still become our president, that, that's a, I believe that's a reflection of what I'm getting at here. We also need to reform our electoral system. I mean, it's a bit of a joke, and, and now it really is kind of a joke around the world, and it's not so much a joke here as much as it is painful. We have to move back to the popular vote, I think, rather than the very highly orchestrated electoral college voting system. In the end, with all of this, I think that we have got to change our perspectives, the way we view the world, the way we view each other. And that, in turn, is what's going to change our values. We value different things when we see the world differently. From those, you know, sort of changed, evolved, if you will, values, we start to have different priorities about life because we look at life differently. So, well, I value this now, so my priorities are a little bit different. It's from there that we start to then form new social agreements, new systems that support that. And theoretically, in that kind of system, in, in those newly evolved kind of social agreements and so on, we would not allow for, for instance, say, institutionalized racism. It wouldn't fit there anymore. So rather than saying, oh, we got to stop institutionalized racism and we fight, 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 fight on the other side and create more contrast, say, well, Let's just change the way that we view things. Let's bring in some other experiences and knowledge and, and so on. So, so we change the way that we view things. And then theoretically, the other part, you know, the negative aspects, the, the, the racism in this case, tends to sort of just dissipate on its own organically, which is really the only way that it ever sticks anyway. We need to be clearer in this country about the difference between a leader that inspires a following versus an authoritarian dictator that demands it. I have lived in you know, developing countries around the world. 
under the rule of some pretty outrageous dictators. However, I would say most of them sort of pale in comparison next to our new commander-in-chief. That's a problem. How do, we, how do we teach our kids what a leader looks like when someone like that is commanding our country? As I look over all of the problems in our world, it's pretty difficult to find any problem. And I've been trying this for a long time. But it is difficult to find any problem that doesn't find some route that connects it back to economics. So I think we're going to have to reform our economic system, our economic agreement, which is currently a very American brand of capitalism. The incentives are wrong. They're off. They're out of alignment. You know, when the, the whole, again, the Panama Papers thing happened and, and everybody was up in arms, oh, this is terrible. All these people are going to be put in prison or whatever. And again, we had the realization that none of that was actually illegal. It's actually incentivized. That's ridiculous. I mean, what's going on in, in, in Standing Rock right now with, with the pipeline scenario and all the other pipelines around America and everywhere else? It's always, you know, it's incentivized to exploit the land and the people and, and railroad over people or whatever. You make more money that way. But why is that the case? I mean, we shouldn't, shouldn't have that. That shouldn't be there. We, we, we could incentivize people to foster equality and kindness and respect for our planet. We could. We just choose not to. So I think we can all agree that profit is the current incentive and that we could shift that to being something more benevolent, more harmonious. And, and unfortunately, it's, you know, it's profit at any, by any means necessary. We hear that term often. And lately, that's been even more apparent. But again, it's a choice. I think people need to realize that they support the tyranny of the government every day through their apathy, through their lifestyles. If we change our lifestyles and get involved, we can turn all of that around. We can do that. In, in short, we need to foster a society that is actually rooted in equality. I know that sounds obvious but the sentiment certainly isn't evident within our current social agreements in the United States. Our society is largely governed by a collective value system. Simply put, we value control more than we value equality, period. I believe that has to change. Or we're going to continue to self-destruct. We have to ask ourselves, what drives society? Are the problems we see at home you know, in our town, across the nation, whatever, around the world. Are they actually interconnected? Or is it just like random stuff happening in other places? From a scientific, you know, anthropological level, even historically looking back, you can easily see that these things are connected. You, you can always t take it back to the root, take it back to the root, take it back. And you're going to keep finding places where it's just connected all around the world. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that you're playing a role in that? I think most people don't. They don't believe that their decisions matter. I want to leave you with this. I believe that all humans are influenced and driven, really, by two primary innate desires. And I think that, and I'm not just saying like the other humans, I'm saying humans, 
all of us. We are all driven by a desire for comfort and an attachment to familiarity. I mean, think about that. We like familiarity. That's why we're opposed to change. I gave an interview in a magazine, uh, Rank and File magazine recently, and they, they posted a meme. It pulled from a quote that I had given or something I'd said, and they made a quote out of it. The quote was, people confuse the term risk and change. What they're scared of is change, so they call it risky. People have an attachment to familiarity. They, familiarity, detaching from that represents change. And that represents a, a risk that people just aren't really willing to take. They don't, they don't know what's in the gap between here and there. So they don't. They don't change. And ultimately, we all want to feel comfortable. Now, I've, even my wife and I, we've talked about this recently, we've lived lives that were more drawn to wonder and mystery and, you know, extraordinary experiences than comfort. You know, now, though, we have a family and we've got <laughs> four kids. And we're more drawn to comfort than ever before. However, it's not in the absence of all these other things. Now we're just adding comfort to the mix as a desire. All humans, I believe, are innately programmed to seek lifestyles and experiences that bring them comfort. And most of the time that comfort stems from something that is more familiar. The comfort does. Now, I'm not talking about extraordinary joy or awe. That doesn't typically come from familiarity. In fact, it comes from something more mysterious. But if we recognize and if we can agree that all humans are driven by some level of desire for comfort and an attachment to familiarity, the idea of activism or humanitarian efforts feels a little uncomfortable to most people. It pushes a lot of people away. It's out of alignment with their programming to just keep their heads down, get a good job, pay the bills, and stay out of trouble. It involves tackling issues that, you know, that makes people squirm. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> we crave a closeness with familiarity. That's why it's so difficult to make a big change. We see people that are in you know, abusive relationships, whether it be spousal situation or, or work situation or whatever, and they continue solely because they're drawn to the familiarity of it. That, that Well, maybe it's going to be worse if I go to the next thing. Change is the antithesis of familiarity. And we're almost always uh, forced, I think, to make a choice between the two. Do you want what's on the other side of change or do you want familiarity? We have times throughout our lives that just keep popping up where we have to make those decisions. People get in the habit of choosing familiarity and they lose out on the possibility of change. What could be on the other side? And unfortunately, we can't have them both. Familiarity makes us feel safe and safety is a big part of feeling comfortable. The thing in activism, I think, that that has always just been mind-boggling to me. And, you know, and very disappointing, I think. I've, I've had a lot of sadness that has come from this reflection. But I feel that so many people 
are more offended by people that are protesting, people that are resisting, than they are at the injustice that they're actually standing up to. Think about that. How often have you sat in a chair and, got, and watched the TV or, new, or you know, on your computer or whatever, or on your smartphone, and, and you sit there and say, oh, man, these people, they're at it again. Why can't they just leave it alone? I think, wow. Well, those people are trying to petition for a more just and equal society. And that's annoying. How does that, why does that make you feel uncomfortable? If it does make you feel uncomfortable that someone is petitioning for more equal, just society, what does that say about your perspective on life? You know, it's, it's more comfortable to sit on the couch than to go running, right? Or go to the gym. Or even go to the dentist or a marriage counselor. None of those things are very comfortable. I think we can all agree, though, that sometimes you have to break free from your comfort zone for the greater good. To improve yourself, to prevent a catastrophe, <laughs> to feel better, whatever. There's a time for change, especially when the old familiar ways aren't producing the results that we want. And if we don't embrace that, then, you know, shame on us. I think we're experiencing that very intensely right now. So the repercussions of that apathy and resistance to change and attachment to comfort and familiarity. The role, I believe, of, of a philanthropist now, of an activist, whatever. It's very much about helping to paint a picture of what peace might actually look like and how we can begin to forge a path towards it. We have to define what peace actually means for society today. And I've taken a stab at some of the elements that I think need to be involved with peace. And each one of them is huge, it's a huge monumental task to tackle our prison system in the United States, to reform that, to tackle the war on drugs, to reform that. They're very closely related, by the way. And to reform, you know, to, to eradicate the institutional racism, which is even more ambiguous. Like, it's not like a thing or a person. It's a belief in a system. We have to do whatever it takes to get out of that. I mean, if we can put a man on the moon and put people, you know, put probes on Mars, and what, we, could, we ought to be able to figure this out. But we have to want to bad enough to supersede our innate tendencies not to. It's like a gravitational pull towards apathy or numbness or disconnection or whatever. And I think part of the human condition, part of the human potential and possibility you know for us to self-actualize it involves getting out of our comfort zones and doing something it's it's intentionality the intentionality of living i think peace is impossible in a society bereft of equality as i said before when we started this conversation out And that peace is only 
possible in a society that embraces our interconnectedness on the, on the other side of that. Our policies, our systems, your social agreements, they have to reflect an unyielding belief that every thought and action creates a ripple effect. That's the consciousness that I'm talking about. Our beliefs and our lifestyles must be rooted in interconnectedness. I often say consciousness is the way, and I believe that. That's what this program is about. And I think that consciousness has to lead us to embracing a society that is rooted in interconnectedness. That's what we're waking up to, is that realization. And until we do that, we're going to continue to spiral out. Things are not going to get better <laughs> without us intentionally pulling up on the yoke and saying, this isn't working, we have to go another direction. And in the next episode, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I'm witnessing right now. My wife and I have had a lot of talks about this in the last couple of days. The last 48 hours has been intense after the inauguration, after the march. And I have another podcast already written up to talk about that, to talk about what has transpired and some of the outrageous, disgusting things that we've seen. Sure, I'll spend a couple of seconds on that and then we're going to move right into some of the most amazing things that I've seen in my lifetime in terms of consciousness and a rise in Ubuntu, interconnectedness, embracing the exact lifestyle that I'm talking about right now. There is a beautiful awakening amongst us amidst this chaos. And that's beautiful. Thank you so much for holding a space for love and freedom with us today. If you appreciate the Nipi ethos and you want to inspire others to align with love, I hope you'll share this podcast with those you care about. Listen to us and rate us. Please go on iTunes and leave a review. It a, takes a couple of seconds. It's really easy. And it at this stage in the game, we're at the very beginning. And I find a lot of organizations, a lot of podcasts, you know, they have very few reviews and they've been on for years. We're just starting off, haven't even launched the website yet. It comes out in a, in a week or so. And I know that when we breach that 20 review mark, it makes a big difference in a ranking on iTunes, which means the higher we're ranked, the more likely it is people are going to hear this message. It's not just about status. <laughs> I think if you've listened to this podcast long enough, you know that I'm not real concerned with that, but I am concerned with amplifying this philosophy. And I want to get that out there. That's why we started this whole thing. Thank you. I wish you peace on your journey. May you align with love and let your life speak. Itaku Yoyasin.